This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And BeaverFit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, Listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 485 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Dan Skidmore. Now, Dan is a veteran Air Force Special Operations Combat Controller who served all over the world. He also is part of the GORUCK cadre and works with Team Force Blue. So we discuss a host of topics from his deployments, training the tactical athlete, all the way through to the conservation work he does now. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback, but most importantly, leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who hasn't heard them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Dan Skidmore. Enjoy. Well, 
Well, Dan, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time on the po- to come on the podcast. I know we're finding you in an unusual location, so let's start with that. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm located in Marrakesh, Morocco, in uh, North Africa. Beautiful. So, of course, I'm going to lead you through kind of like the chronological timeline. But while we're on that subject, how did you find yourself in Marrakesh to to live in Marrakesh? Well, my uh, my wife is from here, and uh, and it always kind of intrigued me. I spent time, you know, in the military in or around this general region, and uh, I was always intrigued by the culture. Uh, and I met her, and uh, and her father actually came over, uh, you know, thirty some years ago, and was one of the early kind of hippie wanderers around this area, and uh, really enjoyed it. And he stayed for close to 20 years and then, uh, you know, left and then we found ourselves back here. Beautiful. Well, I know my family, part of my family lives in the Algarve. So the South, would it be Southwest Portugal? Um, and you're not far from there at all. And there's a ferry, I believe that goes from there. So, um, tell people listening, myself included, educated us on, you know, on the safety and, and, and the ability to be a tourist in Morocco at the moment. Well, I've really never felt more safe in a city. And through Doruk, which I know we'll get to, man, I've walked the streets of a lot of cities in a lot of different states. And you always get to that point where you're like over the railroad tracks and you went one street too far. Or, oh, man, I'm looking around and maybe I shouldn't be here. Or people driving by and you're kind of worried about, you know, whether there's a shooting or getting in trouble or what you're doing. I have never felt that. My, My spidey senses have never really gone off like that here. Um, so safety is awesome. One, because they, it, this culture specifically, the, the Moroccan culture, uh, is very accepting of other, uh, other religions and cultural aspects. So it's not like as extremist as, you know, other, other parts, um, of the world. And so I've always felt totally fine. And, uh, and really the other thing is like language barriers, it can always be intimidating or kind of hold people back from going places if they don't think that they can be understood or if they don't know what's being said. And uh, here, because like, like you said, I mean, it's tourism is, is huge. So pretty much everybody speaks French, English, and Arabic, and you can get around and, and see everything you need to in a, in a good manner. So it's not like inaccessible. And that's part of why I'm out here now is, is we're building that up. And, uh, and trying to get people to come and experience this culture so they can see, you know, how a lot of the rest of the world lives. Beautiful. Well, I'm, I'm coming over to the Portugal in September, um, but I won't have time on that trip. But the next time I'm thinking maybe I'll, I'll return on my own and that way kind of make my way, make my way through because it's somewhere that is so close and such a unique and different culture that it, to me it's a waste to be, you know, in the, the tip of the Algarve and not, not jump on a ferry and come and visit Morocco. Yeah, well, we'd love to have you, and uh, and I hope that more people see it as see it as an option as they're kind of opening up the doors and um, getting out and wanting to get to get out of their backyard. Um, it's a, a great place to do it, and um, and you can really see some amazing things out here for for really affordable costs as well. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, well, obviously you're not originally from Morocco, so let's start chronologically at the beginning then. So tell me where you were born. And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. So I was born actually uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Uh, my father went to Michigan Tech University up there to start his education, and then moved 
uh, about one down to Ohio, where he took a job at Ohio University, and uh, he became a senior research engineer in uh, in avionics. And so Ohio University has a, a really strong avionics department, and uh, and that kind of led me towards my my future career in the Air Force. Uh, but I, I was raised in oh, southeastern Ohio and uh, have a younger brother and a younger sister. Beautiful. Now, is that anywhere near Canton uh, or Akron? Because that's where I'm headed there in a couple of days. So. Yep, a couple hours south. Okay, beautiful. All right, well then, what about sport? Obviously, you're you know an elite tactical athlete now. You were during your time in the Air Force. As a school-age kid, what were you doing? What were you playing? So I was obsessed with basketball. I was uh, I was pretty much single-minded, uh, and I loved playing basketball. Uh, partially because it was a, a team sport, but also the individual aspect of it too, because you play so much and practice so much individually. It was something that I could do way out in the country where I where my dad decided to build a house and I could fill up hours of my time and stay out of trouble. Uh, and then through high school, I got more into uh, well, I dabbled in cross country. So running 5Ks and, and track, and then that just led to being in good shape for basketball, and then uh, eventually started weight, weightlifting, and it kind of evolved from there. Now, it's always interesting when people say that they did individual sports and they did team sports, and I think it's, it's important to have done both, and cross-country is yet another one where, yes, you are part of a team, but ultimately you're an individual on that course. So what did you take from those two different dynamics and how did they apply when it came to the military? Well, I always spent, even playing basketball, I spent probably three times as much time training individually and then performing on the team than I did, than you do actually practicing with your team, right? So you build up your skills as an individual and then you bring it to the team and then you have to, and then you, it doesn't work out very well if you don't play as a team, right? And so uh, that contrast between cross country, I really always used running as like a locomotion to, you know, be better in the fourth quarter of the game so that my legs are still fresh when I need to make a free throw to win the game. Uh, so that's that's how I kind of looked at it. And uh, and then I always loved the the team dynamic of, hey, like you're going into you're going into the game with all these other guys and you can rely on them um, and you have to make it work together. Uh, but really, you're you're practicing on your own, or at least I felt like I did for the majority of the time. Yeah, that's a unique perspective because I mean I think it's the same in the fire service. You know, yes, we function as a team and we train as a team, but it's also those days that you're at home if you're strength and conditioning if you're doing your mobility if you're you know taking extra classes that you then bring back into the team so yeah i mean there's definitely a parallel there too oh yeah and it's still parallel to to what we're doing now or even like you know the go ruck aspect is hey like there's not a one size fits all kind of aspect but then you're training in your backyard or at the crossfit gym or wherever you're getting after it and then Friday night, you're showing up for your go up challenge and you're part of this team. So you're individually training, but you're, you're trying to become more of an asset for your team by being in as good a physical shape as you can be. Absolutely. Well, you ended up being part of a pretty unique team. Um, when you were at school age, were you always thinking of the military or did you have something else in mind? No, not at all. I, I really, 
kind of lacked direction. I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, uh, but I couldn't see myself going back into a college class and uh, and spending time, you know, wasting a lot of time in, in college and changing my majors and, and not knowing what I wanted to do. Um, and so as I got further, like my senior year of high school, I kind of made that decision. I got accepted into Ohio University and then I decided, hey, I'm, I'm I don't have the direction. So I'm going to go into the Air Force and I had this like enlightened moment and um, and all my dad's friends had been prior service Air Force guys or even the Army guys were like, hey, don't do that. Go in the Air Force. They, they'll treat you like a human and uh, and you'll still get this awesome experience. And so that was the path that I chose. Right. Now, tell me about that, because I heard, um, you know, Jason Rich giving you a hard, well, Jason specifically giving you a hard time about choosing the Air Force indirectly. Um, you know, what what was boot camp like for you? And But then what made you want to choose, you know, rather the rather than the easier life, go to a special operations group? Well, I never really wanted the easy way. Right. I always even at the recruiter, I was like, hey, what, what are the hardest things you got? Right. And the. the choice was, well, you can either be a PJ where you can fix people and, you know, work on rescue type stuff, or you can be a combat controller where you can do air traffic control and drop bombs. And that sounded like a great time to me, but I didn't, I still didn't really understand what all it entailed. Um, so there was a certain level of blind luck, but I didn't want it to be the easy way or like the, the boring way. Cause eventually you take the easy way, then you end up just sitting around and hanging out. And that is never a fun time in my opinion. Um, so basic training for me was more like, you know, doing a lot of marching around and folding your underwear and socks a certain way, which I was not down with, <laughs> you know, it's just like <laughs> not really what you're expecting. Um, uh, but everybody has to go through that kind of, that mundane process until you can like unlock to the next level. Cause some people just stay at that level, right? That's the hardest thing you ever do. And then, Hey, that's just part of what all the guys have to do. You go through this indoctrination process and then you can move on past that so really the basic training wasn't really a, a thing I, I just really didn't even know what to expect you know what was coming next now for a lot of us you know we're not well versed in um you know the air controller position or even the military in general so if you wouldn't mind explain what that role is and then kind of lead me through that that kind of selection process and training Okay, so the air traffic, well, the combat control or primarily operates as the air traffic controller on the team. Now, with that being said, you're the air to ground interface, right? So you're talking to all the aircraft that are supporting the team, whether it's on infill, exfill, recon, you're, you know, talking to everybody that's watching the team move and coordinating all of the uh, fire support assets and making everything happen at the same time, as well as telling the the SEAL or SF team, hey, you know, giving them a heads up of what's going on and then making sure that everybody's safe and then bringing in fire support when you need to. And then the air traffic control side stems from taking over runways or going into Haiti when there's an earthquake and you got to you know run the air tra traffic control for two weeks and, and actually run a tower. And so there's there's kind of two main sides to the to the job and then there's also the surveys which is going out and uh, scoping out you know a dirt landing runway or a dried lake bed to see what kind of operations that we can do at a later time um, and so there's a lot of different parts to that job 
And over time, you get introduced to more of them and start integrating them more at the same time as well. So you're that one guy on the team that can kind of do it all um, and make it happen with the Air Force's assets, basically, because you understand all the different levels of, you know, mobility, fire support, recon, uh, infill, exfill. And so you're that single point for the for the team. Yeah, it's amazing. I got got some kind of insight into it from guests like um, David Burke, who was a Marine um, Top Gun pilot who actually volunteered to go with Jocko Willink and some of those guys and was in um, Ramadi doing that same position. Um, And, you know, it it absolutely blows me away that you have to have that physical element, which we'll get to in a minute, but also that technical element that you're able to call in air support, you know, within meters of where men are fighting, men and women are fighting. Sure. And that that emphasis is always on the physical side, but also on the mental side. So you have this like, you know, geeky, like nerd aspect of it where you have to be precise with numbers and, you know, making the whole 40 picture in your head of what the battlefield looks like. Uh, That to me was always beautiful because, and and the, in, the better shape that you're in, the more focus you can have on the external, right? As opposed to being beat down on target and then you have to worry about, oh, you're falling out or everything feels super heavy, which it already does. Uh, but you can stay in the fight for for longer and, and apply more mental aptitude towards the task at hand. So they, they really focus on that throughout the entire training. You know, after the basic training, uh, Air Force basic training shenanigans, uh, then it's man mental and physical at the same time. So what what does that look like? How do they, um, you know, basically filter out who shouldn't be there and who should and what set you up personally for success when other people were ringing the bell? Well, they've changed the game a lot uh, since I went through. I know that they've changed the process uh, dramatically. You know, back when it was hard, back when I went through, uh, it was... <laughs> You know, a couple of weeks at an introduction, uh, in, indoctrination course, uh, and then you know, from that, I think we lost over half the people. And that's just you know, physical training, back and forth, keeping you up for a long time, endless eight count bodybuilders, and uh, and then the pool, which is the great equalizer, setting everybody up for uh, dive school, which will eventually come later in your career, probably about a, a year and a half into training. And so, so much of the process up to that though is getting you ready for that uh, and it's an extremely stressful environment and so like i was saying the the indoc course is kind of the beginning of it just a little hey who wants to who wants to be here and who definitely doesn't want to be here who maybe wants to go and work another great job um, but that's kind of their their first test and then if you make it through that you go to air traffic control school that's a four-month course that all the faa uh, air traffic controllers go through. And then if you decide, Hey, I can make it with the putting it together with the book smarts and the talking to aircraft and the sequencing, and and you're committed to that, then you can continue on to survival school, seer, you know, survive, evade, resist and escape. Um, And then after that, you go to airborne school and then combat control school. And then, then you spend another whole year down in Florida training with all your advanced skills. Uh, it's, it's changed a little bit since then, but it's still basically the same where you get all these different blocks of training, you know, 
stacked on on itself before you actually show up to a squadron where you can be employed then. Right. So just so I understand, so you've got the technical skill of being able to to function as an air controller, but then all these skills, whether it's, you know, the skydiving, whether it's the, the diving, are to physically put you alongside these special operations or special forces groups so you can actually be in place to do the job that you're there to do. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's that's just you know, a way to get to work. Right. And, and we spend so much time doing that. Um, and it's kind of the, the fun stuff, right? Cause it's like, Hey, jumping out of planes, scuba diving, doing that kind of thing or driving, driving cars or dirt bikes or, you know, side by sides off of helicopters or fast roping. Like that's all just a way to get to where you need to be in order to perform the job that you're there to do. Um, and so a lot of that is just like training up so you can be in good a shape as possible so that you're sharp when you have to do your job. Beautiful. Well, one thing that's, that's interesting to me, you, as you said, you've got a very technical position. There's a lot of, you know, um, high level, uh, you know, math and that kind of thing involved in what you're doing. In the fire service, there are, there are definitely many, many times where we're going to have a period of extreme exhaustion followed immediately by a requirement of fine motor skills or the ability to think. And I think, sadly, that Miami collapse is a perfect example. Some of those men and women may be digging and then suddenly come across a victim that needs to be worked on. You know, now you've got drug calculations and, you know, technical math to do. Um, how were they able to test you um, by physically exhausting you and then giving you um you know tasks to do and how were you able to to improve to 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 become better at at functioning under extreme exhaustion well later on through training we'd eventually get to like full mission profiles and you do planning and put together like briefs and at the same time, you're doing PT throughout the day or like running to, you know, pick stuff up and bring it back. And you're constantly exhausted and tired. And then you're planning out your mission. And then when it actually goes to happen, something changes. Right. And so you have to adapt on the fly. And uh, and I really think that that just takes time and practice. And it's just stress inoculation. Right. Is set everything up. Right. Do something difficult and then bring it back down. Change a little something. And then continue, right? And it's repetitions. So you got to do that a bunch of times and then debrief what you might have done wrong. And because you're going to suck when you first start and be totally lost. Uh, but it's that process of like, all right, well, that was one way. Now we're going to change it up a little bit and learn from what you just did. And then, you know, your whole world opens up around you. You start seeing more pieces of the puzzle and putting it, put it in. It. So it, it really takes a lot of time and, and just repetitions, just like anything else to get proficient at. Beautiful. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Was was Iraq your first deployment? No. Uh, so I hit two deployments to Afghanistan, and then uh, two, uh, and then went over to, you know, Central Africa. Did a little did a little work over here, and then uh, significantly further south of where I am now. And then I finished up uh, two trips to Iraq. Okay, that's right. I got it backwards then. So a question that I always, it's a two-part question really, but I always want to ask everyone that comes on that's seen combat, you know, whether it's a weapon in their hand, whether it's a med bag in their hand, um, we get a very polarized view of war 
anyone who's a civilian and myself included it's either the kill them all let god sort them out or it's they're a bunch of baby killers and and there's no kind of human middle ground reported i don't think you know in any any of the the mainstream media so what i like to do is try and get you know stories of these men and women and, and what they saw and and you know the not the justification but you know the 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 things they saw that then empowered them to do what they've been sent to do. So when you first got to Afghanistan, you know you've been through all this training. You know you've come from I uh, from Ohio, excuse me. Were there any moments where once you got there, you saw some horrors, some atrocities, and you realize, okay, regardless of politics, regardless of all the, the things that people talk about back home, I see that there are some horrible people here that need to be taken care of. Sure. I mean, hey, you have that expectation before you even step out of the door that you're going to have to do something, right? That that's that's what you're there to do. Uh, but especially on my second deployment, we did way more medical. Like, hey, everybody come to the to the city center area, and we're going to treat everybody in the village and do like you know, basically hearts and minds type of work. Uh, so that we can help people to not have to get into these fights ourselves. And so we, that we can be, you know, cool with all the villagers. Um, and we, we spent way more time doing that than we were in, engaged in actual combat operations. And I, I, I've said this time and time again is, is like the military as it, as it was and me being on like that, Hey, I could judge jury execu- executioner at some points. Uh, we were extremely, extremely judicial on what happened, where things went and like almost to the point of fresh, well, definitely to the point of frustration when you know that something is the right call. Like, Hey, I know that this is a bad target. We need to take this out and then being very hesitant on doing that. So that's that contrast of like, like you said, it's not just a kill them all, let them sort it out. That's kind of the ignorant answer. And, uh, and it always will be right. But there has to be that blend, right? Where the human aspect comes into it and you see both sides all, always. There's, it, it's not, you can't have one without the other. Absolutely. Well, conversely, what about, um, you know, because there's, there's people that talk about some of the horrors they saw, but then I also like to hear as well about the humanity. So another, I think, um, broad stroke of the brush is that we're in a we're in a war against Iraq or against Afghanistan, and we're not. We're against the the you know some of the the terrorists and the extremists within those country, and then the rest of the country is just trying to get on with their life. So, were there any moments of of humanity or or just observing normality amongst the the combat zones that that resonated with you? Oh, definitely. Whether it was in Afghanistan with like you know the farmers, they live or goat herders, right? They live a very simple life and they, they don't want to be involved in any of that. But unfortunately they're, they're stuck right in the middle and they're living at a very, like a very modest level where they have no want for anything else, but to live their life and have their kids. And, you know, they're happy stained on a little bit of bread and tea if they've got it. Right. That's, that's all they need. Uh, and then, you know, Iraq, we were in Kurdistan a lot and it was like, wow, this is a totally different environment where you've got malls and you've got families and, and kids playing outside with each other. And so being in that environment, it's like, wow, this is actually like, I don't know if I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina right now, 
You know, this is like high level. And there's people that are still living their lives, even though that, you know, just down the road, maybe an hour down the road, some craziness is happening. Uh, it just has been happening and it's going to continue to be happening for years to, to come. Uh, but those people have just, you know, adapted to it. And that's it is it is a tough thing to see um, because you see that contrast of folks just trying to live out their lives and they're stuck in the middle of um, in the middle of a war just based on where they're born. Yeah, well, exactly. That's exactly it. And, you know, that's why we have to be so grateful, you know, growing up in, in England or Australia or, or America or any of these countries that are not currently in the middle of a war. And, you know, my, my country was, you know, 70 years ago, we were being bombed by the Germans, you know, so we all have our turn. But I think it's so important for us right now. And it's so heartbreaking, probably, especially for, for the military that have fought for this country to see a lot of the, the division, you know, the, the divide and conquer that's being pushed on people here because the reality is we should all be very grateful that you know overall life in in the states is is incredible and there's so much to be thankful for sure well, you hear that sometimes from people that say hey we've we've never had it so good right we've never things have never been so great and so now we complain about the the smallest things or we create our own problems I'm not saying that some problems are not you know there as they are but if you don't have you're, if, if life doesn't have problems, you tend to create them for yourself, right? And um, and that's, I think that's happened a lot recently. Absolutely. Well, one you know thing that we don't hear about as much as well is when the military goes and helps in a humanitarian way. So when the Haitian earthquake happened, I was actually a firefighter and, and I volunteered to go out there and be part of the, uh, you know, the rescue mission. But for some reason in the fire service, we had people over there just for a few days and then they pulled everyone back, which was very weird because they were still finding people alive there. So I never got to go over. Tell me about that time. You know, you, you know you're, as you, you mentioned, you, you were in the tower at that point, but what did you see when you were in Haiti? Well, we weren't necessarily in the tower. We were kind of set up on a, a card table in the infield <laughs> in the grass for two weeks, uh, running everything in. So, you know, it was a it was a massive response to a, a terrible situation. Um, and and given even if there wasn't an earthquake there, there was already a terrible situation because people were, you know, extremely poverty ridden. I mean, eating like eating mud cookies, right? I mean, not a good thing uh, going on down there. Uh, but man, we had an extremely positive uh, operation that had more airlift than the Berlin airlift, you know, the Berlin, um, which is kind of crazy to think about that we had no damage done to like anything on the airfield ourselves. Um, but a massive response of people, money, equipment, all directed at a problem. And it, I, I do believe that that helped a lot of people there uh, locally at, at some level. And then I didn't spend a lot of time on the outskirts, like in the city, because my job wasn't really like rescue at the time. Uh, but I know the pararescue men that were there, they spent countless days, I mean, digging through rubble, lifting up huge structures to try to save people or, or recovery at that point. And uh, it was pretty selfless work, really. Um, it, was a, it was an amazing time. But you look at it and it's like, hey, you're just there to help other people. And, uh, and my job was just to, to get massive effects on the ground and 
get people get other aircraft out of there so you can replace them with another aircraft full of supplies and and people that wanted to just come and assist other humans and and where what kind of countries were you seeing because obviously the u.s was coming in but what other countries were coming in to assist uh well u.s uh, there was tons of different uh countries I, i know there was big canadian response um at one point i think that there was a a Japanese crew that came down and they had a huge flag and like everybody was following them and you could see their flag waving for miles. Um, I'm not exactly sure all the countries involved. Uh, cause I was, I was so, so heads down into it of like not really thinking about the political or, you know, Hey, who's sending what kind of thing, but just, Hey, this is all, these are just aircraft that have things that the people need inside of them. And that was mainly what I was focused on. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I ask that is because, again, I think that's human nature. I really do. I'm, I'm an incurable optimist overall. And yes, there are some horrible shitbags in the world that need to be taken care of. But I think that, you know, most people are inherently good. And to see that happen in Haiti, and I'm sure, as, as you mentioned, all these different nations sending people, um, that illustrates, I think, that most people just want to do good. And politics definitely get in the way sometimes. But, you know, I think the desire to help other people is in most of us. Not all of us, but most of us. Sure. I think I, think I would agree with that. Yeah. All right. Well, then, just one more area before we transition to, you know, post-military. Um, you know, people are probably a, a somewhat versed now with Afghanistan and, and Iraq. But you were in Niger. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, so kind of without obviously talking about stuff that you shouldn't be talking about, you know, what, what was the deployment there? What kind of um, a role were you playing? Uh, it, was a, it was a hot, sandy, and, uh, and, and very <laughs> interesting role in uh, kind of the staging and like future operations um, because we were kind of prepping the battlefield for things that were currently happening and then would end up happening a couple of years later. Gotcha. All right. Well, then transition is another, I think, big area that I like to talk about, whether it's transitioning out of the military, whether it's police fire, whatever it is, you know, especially in, in groups that are very tight knit, whether it's special operations or, you know, a fire station, a fire crew. Um, it's a tough change for a lot of people, especially if you've identified as, you know, the PJ, the air controller, you know, whatever your role was. Um, what was that transition like for you personally? Did you, did you find yourself moving to another tribe quickly? Did you struggle at all? I did. Yeah. Well, there was, there was both, um, because I already had the gym environment, right? The CrossFit community and, uh, and I become a gym owner in, uh, about two years before I decided to transition out. And so I knew generally what I wanted to get into, uh, right as I was done, but I didn't, you know, you, you leave one tribe with, that has a lot of security around it and, you know, they're taking care of a lot of different aspects and then you cut that and move on, uh, which I did at, at nine years. And so I, I didn't have any like retirement benefits. Luckily everything still works. So, you know, no, uh, VA disability or anything like that, thankfully. Um, and I just didn't, didn't mess with that. Um, side of things at all. So it was a big, you know, big breakup. And so, you know, left, left behind one community and focused more on the business. And so I got right into that uh, with really no downtime. And, uh, and so that took the, 
the place of that tribe, but I was still at Fort Bragg. So, you know, my friends are still around. I still have connections, community, and, uh, and I can be involved with a lot of the people and still kind of have a touch on it. But then I, then I still felt like I was missing a lot of the things that, uh, I, that I loved about the military. Right. And, and now looking back, uh, one of the things, a couple of things that I was missing the most is like travel and then the continuation of training, because in the military, I was always doing a different task or trying to learn a new skill or, Hey, I'm going to go here on this training trip and we're going to learn this. And then it's going to make me better for my overall job. And for a couple years, even like when I first got out, I didn't have that as much. And I think that that's a huge thing for my transition. Now looking back, like, you know, six years back is I was missing that in a huge way. And, uh, and so go ruck and then, you know, all the cool side adventures from that have spurred out of that, uh, experience, you know, force blue and, and moving and doing this and all the business stuff outside of that. It's all related back to the, Hey, I, I need to continue this training for something. Right. And, uh, and goal oriented focus on bettering myself and, and enjoying the experience. And what made you decide to transition out? So I, uh, I had a daughter and uh, I got super soft after that. Any, uh, dads that have <laughs> daughters. And I always say that like, man, if I would have had a son first, I think I would have probably not made that decision, but, uh, it, it softened me up right at the right time for that to stick in there. Uh, and I, I really wanted to focus on the business side of, uh, of, of my life. And, uh, and I felt like I kind of, at some level, I felt like I kind of reached the pinnacle of what the Air Force had for me anyways. I could have kept riding that out for 10 years and got a lot of different experiences. But um, at the time, that's the way that I felt. And uh, and it felt like the right right choice to make. See, it's interesting. I had the Andy Stumpf on um, a couple of years ago now, I think it was. And he talked about peaking at about 10 years. And not peaking like, oh, I can't get any better. But just that learning curve starting to dip a little bit. And I had the same thing, I think, in the fire service too. Like what was exciting at year one was a nothing fire at year you know, 10 or 14 where I ended up transitioning out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, of course, in the fire service, a lot of people do stay 25, 30 years. But I found that there was definitely a change in that curve where I was learning a little less from each call. And certainly my heart rate was not getting up unless it was, you know, something really significant. So that 10 year mark does seem to be, you know, for a lot of people that are in those um, intense careers, that does seem to be the kind of timeline where things start to change. And either, you know, as you said, you, you change rank in that organization, you maybe change the teams, or you transition to a different chapter. Yeah, and that and I think that I could have continued to learn a lot. But like, you know, you get to a point where you jump out of the plane at 20,000 feet and you, you just don't even like, it's like second nature, you know, and that's the same kind of thing or in a firefight and it doesn't hit you as hard. Um, but you know, Hey, you can keep riding that out and you're going to continue to get better at your skill. It doesn't mean you're at the top of the top. You just think that you're there and, uh, and your body's re responding and your mind is responding to that. And you, you're just looking for a different stimulus from something else. Um, and I know that I would have, continue to improve a ton had I stayed that path. Uh, but it was, you know, right timing at the right life. And I knew that I, if I was to stay in, I would, I was going to miss years um, of, of playtime with the, the family. And, um, and so that was the, 
the choice that I made then. Absolutely, a great choice. Um, what I know that you became very invested in the strength and conditioning side too. So um, I'm kind of backtracking timeline again a little bit, but walk me through what your you know, strength and conditioning modality was early on. I know you found CrossFit, so talk to me about, you know, those years. And then, you know, is that a philosophy you still carry or has it changed again? Uh, so w- when you're going through training, uh, you're, you're almost like a, well, for, for my vision, was you're almost like a triathlete, right? So you got to run a long ways, you got to swim a long ways, and then and we don't do a lot of biking, but you can fill in C with jumping out of planes, diving, riding motorcycles, whatever it is. Um, so that endurance bunny aspect needs to be there. Oh, and, and rucking also. You can't leave that out. And so you have to be at the top of the top for that. And then the life on the team, for me anyways, I always felt like it was more satisfying to you know be strong and be able to lift a lot up or lift a lot and also be able to go forever because you never know on a day-to-day basis what you're going to end up doing. So you have to have the capacity to do both. And, uh, and then that's when I was more introduced to CrossFit because that's kind of the ideal is jack of all trades, master of none. Um, and I felt like I saw great improvements, you know, by all metrics, it was like, Hey, we need to be strong, but we need to also have a, a high work capacity. And so I, love training that way. Uh, and then I got into competitive exercising, you know, did the, like the regionals CrossFit competition for a couple of years. And, uh, while I was still in, like I, I finished halo jump master school one night and then the next day we're competing at the CrossFit games regional event. And it was, you know, a lot to juggle. And I really enjoyed that process. Um, but I, I never went on to the CrossFit games cause that was like the next tier. Well, I was, I was teared up in, in the military. And so that was my focus, but I, at the same time, you know, on the same journey found coaching and helping other people with their training and, and they were coming to the gym and I was giving them what I had and from my experience and to help them reach their goals. So I really enjoyed that. And, uh, and then through that evolution dabbled in like strongman for a little while, powerlifting. And, and at the same time that I was doing all of those sports, I was still kind of up in my skills of like, how do, how do we relate this to other people? Right. And how can I take what I've done and help other people train to be stronger, faster, healthier, and, and get more out of their body by, you know, training smart. And, um, and so all that to say, well, we built it up and then had a huge shift into like endurance work and, um, you know, obstacle course racing and running a, a ultra, out in Iceland, uh, and then doing go rucks every weekend because, you know, it makes way more sense to, to lead go ruck events every weekend and travel and train and get paid for it. than it does to do a, a CrossFit competition where you might get like a 20% coupon on some shoes, <laughs> you know? So, so, so that was a, a easy choice to make for me. Um, uh, so I've always been like, you know, kind of motivated by like a reward base. My dad used to my dad used to motivate me like, Hey, Every point you score over 10 points in the game, I'll, I'll give you five bucks. And I'm like, all right, perfect. That makes sense. And if I could spend a weekend competing in a CrossFit competition and kill myself or lead a GORUCK event and get all these other intangibles plus get paid for it, like it, it just makes more sense to, to work on endurance work and, uh, and then help other people by challenging them and then also – that's evolved to now training on a daily basis. Um, so that's, 
that's the evolution there. Beautiful. Because with the CrossFit side, I I got into it in 2006, I think it was. So you know, early on, um, and uh, was amazed how well it worked. But as as I started progressing forward and came, you know, across people like Julian Pinot, who's from StrongFit. Um, you know, it made me realize that one thing that we don't do very well in CrossFit traditionally um, is carry weight over distance. So that's where the strongman for the the tactical athlete, the firefighter, for example, I found that was was really good. The heavy sandbags and sleds and kettlebell carries and that kind of thing. Um, but then I had another rehumbling when I met you a few weeks ago, rucking. So as a firefighter, I was telling Jason like we. We do carry stuff on our back, but it's usually vertically, unless you're a wildland firefighter, which I, I never was. Um, so that was another very humbling thing. Like we we did the the tribe reunion. I think it was like 50 pounds on our backs. Um, but I I struggled. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, you know, I got through it and it was fine. But it was it was uncomfortable very very early. So. Um, you know, which areas outside of CrossFit did you find that you added to that training to to maximize your ability to be the best tactical athlete? Well, at some point, uh, the CrossFit method it got to a point where it was so competition focused, and it was all about like, hey, we can't measure how hard you hit a hammer onto a sledge uh, a, a big tire, so we're not going to do that movement anymore, or rucking is one of those things. It's like, Hey, we're outside. Well, we're going to row, you know, uh, a marathon. Well, what about like rucking a a marathon? Right. I mean, it's, it's similar locomotion, right. But, uh, but you got to get outside and and that's what I really enjoyed. And about the rucking aspect is like training outside, getting dirty, feeling it, like feeling a functional thing, right. You're not going to ever like ride an assault bike, into anywhere. Yeah, it's going to suck. You can get deep, deep, deep down into the pain cave and it's great for training in a gym. Uh, but you miss a whole lot extra if you're not like outside exploring. And so that's, that's the kind of avenue that I eventually took it is like, Hey, I want to do more. I want to get outside and rock climb, or I want to climb to the top of this hill just to get the view. Right. As opposed to being stuck on the hamster wheel. And so there was this like change in that environment where, it, from my opinion, where it was just like, hey, we got to measure all of this, right? Barbell, shoulders, overhead, and then repeatedly, as opposed to actually like moving functional stuff, which I love about strongman. But that was just like, you know, I'm a 195 pound guy. Like, I'm not going to, I'm not, there's under 200 division, but man, like you're picking up six, 700 pounds at a time. Like, there, it, there's an end to that in sight, or there's only so much you can do for that. And, um, and so I had to, make a big change in my training um, and it'll continue to evolve through like martial arts and jujitsu and like how, how I train now um, for my goal specific work is it's different and it's going to continue to evolve with the, with the intent of also helping other people along in their journey. Right. Because if I can get that experience and I can pull from that, then I can help other people kind of focus on uh, their goals and add some value there. Now, how long have you been doing jujitsu for? Uh, about a year. Okay, so new-ish. Um, I I found that CrossFit actually served me very well with jujitsu, and I think a lot of it was the the pull-ups and the rope climbs and these you know grip endurance um, movements that we do. Whereas I, it doesn't help my skill at all. I still get tapped, you know, 
all over the place. But what I noticed was 10, 20 minutes into the roles when other people were gasping for air, I was still okay. So, I mean, I, with carryover, I think, like I said, there's there's some, there's definitely some missing pieces in the tactical athlete carrying push-pull. But I was actually very surprised with, with mud runs. It seemed to transition pretty well with the obstacles there and also with jiu-jitsu. Have you, did you find a similar thing yourself? Yeah, I, I kind of came into a different angle because I felt like my, my grip was already awesome, but it was just like cardio. That was what I needed to to improve, to, to last longer. Um, but, I mean, any good training program is going to spend – an immense amount of time working grip and grips and hips, right. Is, uh, is what you need to, is what you need to win a lot of sports and then jujitsu or, or martial arts, um, which that's been a fun, a fun journey throughout and, uh, and a, a huge learning experience. Well, you obviously have, again, from a special operations background and there seems to be a lot of, a lot of respect given to your community from law enforcement and as a martial artist myself you know we look at some of the challenges that we see in law enforcement moments some of the 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 less than um less than trained videos that we see of some you know police officers struggling with you know with going hands-on and and let me preface by saying i can't imagine not just having to take someone down, but to cuff them as well. The challenge of that, you know, is, is incredible. But with you having that special operations background and then now, you know, being the strength and conditioning guru and being in jujitsu, what are some of the things that you see? And I'm generalizing there are some phenomenal, you know, police officers out there that take their strength and conditioning very seriously. They're, you know, black belts in jujitsu. They're amazing. But what are some of the things you think overall that profession could do to to improve the chances of, you know, um, safely detaining people and, and not making some of the the mistakes that we've seen in the worst case scenarios on some videos. I think like we talked about earlier, it just boils down to reps and getting that inoculation, right? So seeing slow reps and talking through situations and then actually applying it because you, you never know how you're going to respond in the moment. Uh, unless you've put yourself into that moment, you know, talking through it, actually actions on and then applying it, um, which, you know, it just takes training and time. And I think that that's one of the best big pushes for, you know, police officers is get more training, right? There needs to be that like huge emphasis on, we need to train as much as we do anything else in every other sport you do that. And, uh, and so if that could be one thing that, is taken seriously is you got to get in and train. And I know in the military, like we train tons on every little thing and you have to rehearse and see how you do against this and then apply that the best as you can when you're actually out in the real world. Uh, that's, that's really how it applies to me is like, I mean, it's never going to be a perfect environment, uh, but the more exposure you have to it, the better chances you make the right call if you've seen it before and you've practiced it and you've given yourself permission to do A, B, C, or D uh, and be okay with whatever that outcome is. Yeah, well, I mean, again, an important point that you've made and, and several other people have made on here is first getting those reps 
with no pressure, as you said, rehearsing and going through them and getting the confidence up, but then secondly, pressure testing it. And I think that's something I've seen in my profession. There's a resistance to training at night, training in the rain, training under duress. You know, um, we, we have a tendency to seek the path of least resistance, but that's not the path that first responders should be seeking. You know, we absolutely need to have you know, control of those skills first under a controlled setting, a safe setting, a normal, you know, learning environment. But then the next level is to pressure test them because when the shit hits the fan, we're not going to be in a calm environment. It's going to be a nightmare. I mean, again, look at Miami. Imagine being one of the first crews arriving on that scene. You know, that's what we've got to deal with. So it's, I think it's a very powerful lesson from what you just said is that there's almost like two phases. One, learning the skill without duress but secondly then putting that skill under duress as you said and then continuously re- you know rehearsing you know and i think when you hear of whether it's the kind of defund the police movement whether it's fire administrations or even fire unions that we see you know opposing realism and training that is a, is a is an awful thing that we've allowed to happen in our profession and that needs to be reversed yeah, and I do think there's a, there's value to different speeds in training as well. And so it doesn't always have to be like all full tilt, right? I've learned things uh, personally, like I, I learned things really well by doing things slow motion, right? You can talk about it all day and then do it really fast, but then it really drives it home when it's like, all right, I'm going to master this and feel it at slow motion, Right. And, and see all these little aspects to everything that's happening around you. And then when you crank up the intensity, then it's there. Then you can notice all these little things that you weren't noticing before. So that's, it's like, it doesn't always have to be, you know, super fast speed training situations, slow it down, feel those little, you know, nuanced things. And then, take it, take that out in the debrief. And that's where you learn from it. Um, Cause and if you slow it down, you can absorb more. Yeah. I think that's the other, other key word there is debrief. Like, you know, there's a tendency to, to check boxes, you know, rather than go on the drill ground, make mistakes and then learn from them. And then most importantly, do the scenario again, do the skill again, as you mentioned, it's never going to be perfect, but it's certainly going to be better than the last time you did it. Sure. Definitely. Right. Well, staying on strength and conditioning before we go to go ruck and force blue and some other areas um, with that journey that you've been now, as you mentioned, you, you know, we require we all the professions listening pretty much require a high level of strength, but also that muscular endurance as well. What are some of the things that you use now, whether it's personally, whether you're training other people to have not only strength, but have strength endurance? Uh, do you mean like uh, objects or uh, or techniques? Or? Um, I mean, just really, you know, this the the muscular ability to do the roles. So whether it's uh, you know a soldier, for example, having a ruck long distances, whether it's a firefighter having to climb twenty floors before they work, you know, we 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 tend to see one or the other, either the as you mentioned, the triathlete or the strongman, and obviously the firefighter you know, air controller, all those people kind of sit somewhere in the middle there. So it seems to be a hard thing for people to train the endurance element and the strength element simultaneously. Yeah, that's how we talk about uh, concurrent training, right? And doing what, spending your time on what makes the most change. And so I'm a big fan of like 
lifting heavy um, because it hits the stimulus, right, quickly, right? And then also balancing that with I need to be able to go far um, and do the, whatever the skill task is. And so there's a place for that in training. Well, if I know that I can only train for 60 minutes in a day, what am I spending my time doing? Right. And then if I get four to eight training sessions through the week, what am I investing that time in? So depending on what your goals are and where you're coming at it from, that would kind of base how you need to approach those modalities. Um, and everything boils down to like we, we said, man, speed, right? You're either going super heavy slowly or light and fast or like, you know, it, there's a time where we need to do uphill stuff for a long time or sprints. And so that balancing act is how we can kind of break up the, the concurrent training model where you're strong, fast, and you can go for a long time. Um, so you have to have the, the balance is what it boils down to. Beautiful. Well, staying on the, that theme then. So tell me how you became you know, involved with GoRuck and then the position that you hold now. So one of my coaches, well, one of my athletes at my gym, uh, he was actually a guy on the team with me uh, the last couple of years I was in the Air Force, and he was a member at the gym, and he looked like he was having a great time. He'd come back in, and he was like, man, I went, I was in D.C. this weekend running around with all these folks, and it was crazy. We did this, and I was like, whoa, that sounds cool. Um, and he got me introduced to Go Ruck, and I did my first event as a you know, we ended up going through the night at like 20 miles and just, I was obliterated and it was an awesome event, uh, great team building. And there was, there was highs and lows. And I was just like, wow, okay, this is cool. And then just delved headfirst into it uh, over the course of the next couple of years and ran every event that I possibly could. And I was able to travel a ton and meet a ton of different people and see different, you know, personalities and just get this overall cool experience that I couldn't have gotten any other way. Um, and it was just a volunteer every week, you know, every opportunity that I could is, Hey, yeah, I'll go there. I'll, I'll set it up. And it allowed me to exercise a lot of creativity in like, I'm going to plan this event and they're never going to be the same and they're going to be very challenging, right? No matter where we go, it's going to be a different, a different mission, if you will. Um, but it allowed me to like plan and organize and then interact this entire time. Um, so that was a, a great opportunity to, to, to exercise that. And it was a lot of fun. Now, what are some of the things that you've seen, um, tribally? Because when we did that, that ruck in Jacksonville, um, you know, it was coming out of COVID. I think it was what earlier this year. Um, and it just seemed like, so many people were just so happy to be in a group again. And I think, as you said, especially if you're transitioning out of, you know, a, a tactical profession, that seems like a really, you know, great tribe to be a, a part of, whether you're actually doing it with the the guys at HQ or whether you're just doing your own local, um, you know, go ruck group. So what have you seen? Because obviously you travel all over the place. It's kind of common denominators with, with that tribal element and, and the bonding of people. You know, I would say that that environment was, it, it's recreatable anywhere you go, right? And so just that, that energy was, from my experience, that's what the cadre is trying to create is that like cohesive unit. And you do that through, through a high level of adversity, right? In, in just a couple of hours time. 
And so, you know, you can recreate that at any point and even before, during, or after this lockdown and, uh, you know, people can't hang out with each other or do anything. It's this weird environment. Uh, it really didn't feel that much different to me, uh, than any other event. And maybe it was appreciated differently by other people because they, they didn't know what it was like before. Uh, but man, I, I felt that way time and time again. And it's really, it's really an extension of that post ruck. Like you, you toasted that first beer. Right. And I saw a couple of people talking about it as like, man, that's, that's the feel. Right. And, and everybody's hanging out and was like, wow, okay, we just did that. And, uh, and that was an experience and you learned something hopefully about yourself and, and a group and had a fun experience. Uh, type two fun, I think is what it is, but you can't really get to that level without going through that. Right. Absolutely. Well, one more question on the stand on GoRuck. The, the most notorious event that you guys have is the selection which is a 48-hour, you know, supposedly somewhat um, parallel to what a selection process would be like. And based on the attrition rate, I'm sure that they've got it, you know, somewhat there. Um, what have you seen as far as common denominators of the people that have made it through? Because I know they're few and far between. The one common denominator that I would say is uh, just a a relentless spirit, right? Like you're not going to stop no matter what. Uh, and so that's the, the number one thing that I've seen is like guys are, they're just going to continue going. And, uh, and that's what you have to do is even if you're beat up or broke down, like the guys that I've seen that have finished over the last couple of years. And even before I got involved in go rug meeting the guys that have gotten through it, it's just a, a relentless spirit. And they're just going to continue heads down or, or actually, you know, not with their heads down, but their eyes up and continue on to until the day is done. And that's really what it, that's really what it takes. And even at like a special operations level is you're going to stay and uh, until the job is done. Absolutely. Well, one more one more question on that whole theme. As I mentioned, I was humbled when I did go up because that definitely was something that didn't carry over from the CrossFit. Of course, you know, my overall conditioning was, was good because of it, but um, it was a huge weak link. Um, so now when I walk my dog, I've got my pack and every time I do my two mile walk with her, I'm throwing a pack on to try and work on that. I've had some guests talking about the only way to prepare for rucking is rucking. So um, whether you're going to agree or disagree with that, if people listening want to start introducing that element, what's the best way to improve your ruck strength and conditioning? Oh, uh, well, you got to put the, you got to put the tick on the back, right? That's the, the number one thing is you have to embrace that. And, uh, and even for the CrossFit games athletes, like that's, it's the hardest, it's one of the hardest events. I mean, you, you go back through and you look at like the, the games athletes debriefs is they just get destroyed by the rock. And so you have to do it. You have to spend the time under tension, um, to, to really feel more comfortable with it. And that's just like anything else is you have to, you got to put it in time because it's never going to get easier. You're just going to get a little bit more accustomed to it. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Well, then moving on to an altruistic project that you're a part of, Force Blue. So Roger was on here, Roger Sparks. 
um, you know, he's a, he's a member of that organization as well. Tell me about how you found them and tell me about what they do down here in Florida. So Force Blue is, uh, man, it was a kind of a lucky, uh, a lucky introduction that I made with another GoRuck cadre, uh, Will Hinkson, who's another Force Blue team diver. And uh, I was down doing an event in uh, Detroit, Michigan, and we went out and we were talking about like everything that we're into. And he was like, hey, well, you sound like you, you know, enjoy doing this uh, diving and, uh, and I'm involved in this project. And I started talking to him and he said, hey, well, we're basically restoring coral reef and doing ocean conservation in this really any environment, but using our skills to to tackle this huge problem. And uh, and I was immediately kind of interested in it and always looking for an, another adventure to go on. And then got on the phone with Roger and he kind of gave me the brief and uh, kind of the, the idea of what to expect. And then went down for a uh, two week training course down in uh, the keys and, and just fell in love with the process uh, and, and really got through, like it was almost therapeutic. And for most guys that get involved with it or, or scuba dive, you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic process as it is. Uh, but you're actually doing good work as well as, uh, as, you know, physical tasks, but you're making a difference. And so I've, genuinely enjoyed doing that uh, and being involved with it beautiful yeah i mean that's two areas that seem to be very healing is again the tribe of course in you know, that purpose but also altruism and I, th- I find that a lot like when people as you said have have that mission i think that aligns with what police fire military signed up to do they want to make the world better so when we transition out you know you get guys that go into finance or in a real estate, I don't think you have that same through line. You've changed your through line a little bit. Whereas when people, you know, find these nonprofits or, you know, get into coaching or whatever it is, you're still carrying on that, you know, helping people element. So um, I can see how, you know, Force Blue would not only be healing from a tribal element, but also the altruistic part of still continuing that mission of improving the world. Definitely. Yeah. Now I know one of one of the guys I want to get on still. We've we've chatted it before, but he's very busy as well as Rudy Reyes. So did you dive with him? Oh yeah. Rudy. <laughs> Beautiful. So you see so you got people from all all different backgrounds on that team. Yep. A lot of different well, you know, we're a lot of different backgrounds, uh and and a couple different eras as well, right? There's guys that are involved that are, you know, a couple you know, decades my senior as well as guys that are kind of came after me um and so it's a it's an interesting cross-section of guys that are coming out and uh and getting involved into it uh, as well as the guys that are like you know lead the lead divers it's like wow you've been scuba diving for 40 years all right well that's pretty impressive um and then getting actually working with the scientists because that's that's where the the real magic happens is taking these you know, knuckle dragger operators types that are just like, yeah, I'll kick hard and go do this. Uh, But, but learning from and adding value to the science community um, has been a a really cool aspect. Now, as far as the the history, what, what is the history of the reef is damage from tourism? Is it from the environment? Um, You know, what, what, what's the damage? And then what are you guys doing to repair that? 
Uh, it's been both. I mean, yeah, tourism, people going down and kicking it or, you know, suntan oils and lotions and chemicals that humans introduce as well as natural like hey the the oceans are getting warmer and that's a in bleaching events is a, a thing um but also like down in florida specifically i think you have some runoff from uh from pollution and things and just dirty water and the reef is a living organism and so it can get sick just like anything else and so one of the missions that we did do was um, basically giving coral reef uh, antibiotics and spreading it into this disease ring. And so we'd go down and like rub a solution into where we would see the disease. And it would it was having massively positive effects at, at saving these reef. Uh, but we've also done other things like, you know, turtle, uh, sea turtle rescue and then studies. And so diving in pulling turtles out of the, out of the water, taking their blood, doing some tracking on them. Um, we've done a bunch of cl- ocean cleanups. I mean, at a, at a high level, like setting world Guinness, Guinness book of world records for the amount of clean uh, trash that we've pulled out and being involved in a lot of different projects like that. So it's, you know, kind of just using our skills of like leadership t- and, and, you know, hard charging attitudes to affect this problem beautiful it's so it's so good to hear i mean there's so many different you know uh, options for people to to continue to do good like i said whether it's ex-military ex you know police fire whatever our, our backgrounds are um just one more area before i go to some closing questions as i mentioned before some people struggle with the transition and you know from the interview i heard with you and jason and rich um you know some of the, the points that you had were about finding that other tribe, about refinding that purpose. So, um, you know, what do you um, attribute to you successfully transitioning over? And, and what do, what are you observing um, some of the areas that, that make other people struggle? Hmm. Well, I think for me, it was having having a mission, right? And that's, that's kind of, you're going to hear that from basically everybody is having something to to put your energy towards so that you can wake up and feel like you have some purpose. And mine could be, could have latched on to any number of things and, and it'll still like continue to evolve over time and just be a part of what I do and, and a part of my process. Uh, but for anybody else, I would say, Hey, we well, got to get out and experience things you don't, you don't experience that like in a vacuum, right? You can't, you can't feel that by yourself sitting around watching movies or just being like a, a lone wolf. And so that's where the the beauty of like the GORUCK community comes in is that there's a bunch of like-minded weirdos that are all looking to do something cool. Right. And, uh, and there's a lot of veterans that get into that, that are just on the, not necessarily even the, on the cadre side, but on the participant side as well, because it, it reminds you of, Hey, like you got to stay sharp. Right. And this is going to, it's hard. You need some purpose and, if that's what you want to get into, well, you're going to have to get your life and your physical state in order, or you're going to suffer even more. And so it can keep you focused on uh, on a on a good, healthy path. Beautiful. So the last question then, before we go to the closing questions, lead me through you moving to Morocco and then and then what you're doing there. 
Well, we had some, uh, <laughs> I had some kind of like traumatic stuff happen in North Carolina. Um, I had like a flood in my building at five and a half feet of water and that's for a whole nother podcast. Yeah. And it was a, it, it was a, a pretty, uh, if I hadn't done the force blue thing and like been like all about, you know, the rivers and, and, and feeling good about it, I would probably lost my mind. But, uh, but we got through that whole, like, it, you know, it was a, it was a crazy time. Um, we built, and then some other like wild stuff happened. We were like, man, we, I think we need to change where we're at in, in the world and maybe do something a little different. And, um, and so we had an opportunity out here to, to come out and renovate a, a, an ancient house in the, in the old city wall. So the Medina, uh, Medina just means city in Arabic. And so they call it the Medina because it's the old walled city where they first put down, you know, roots here in Marrakesh and then built this big wall around it. And everything inside is still like ancient. I mean, it's generally untouched, um, but not like, you know, it's still got a lot of new influence. And so we had the opportunity to come out here and renovate this boutique hotel to allow other people to come and experience this as well and stay, stay with us and We'll kind of organize the the adventure if you're into that kind of thing. So made the big leap and uh, and still kept some roots back in North Carolina. I still have my uh, still have a couple of businesses that we run out there, but uh, we're able to step away and focus on this for for a while. I mean, that's so exciting though. And again, it's about chapters. You know, I think it's so important that you know. As you said, some people are in the military their entire career or the fire service or the law enforcement, but we only get one life too. So to have done, you know, what you did in the Air Force and then, you know, the period that you had here and now you're in Morocco, I think that that makes for an exciting, exciting life story. <laughs> we'll open it together. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then transitioning to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or books that you love to recommend that can be related to what we've discussed today or completely unrelated? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Vinny Venturella has a book. It's uh, The Three L's of Leadership. And uh, Vinny Venturella is a uh, he's an old combat control chief who um, – who wrote this book for basically guys that are coming through and uh, it gives, gives some leadership talks. I mean, he was like, he was like Jocko before Jocko. Right? <laughs> Don't I mean, Jocko hate you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, you know, I, as I've listened to Jocko over the course of the last like year, uh, man, like I feel like I've got five other NCOs that are like, wow, I heard that guy say that like way back when, <laughs> You know, it's crazy. You see, uh, you see little parallels everywhere. Beautiful. But his, his book, uh, really, really influenced me as a young guy and, uh, getting after, getting after work ethic and, uh, and like training philosophies as well. Brilliant. All right. What about a movie and or documentary? Oh boy. Uh, so, I, one of my favorites is the, the Count of Monte Cristo and, uh, and documentary. I mean, the Alex Honnold, uh, free solo. Free solo. Yeah. I mean that if you can't, if you can watch that and not feel inspired to go out and like tackle a, another goal that you have, or like just go climb up high onto something and, and take in the views and, and overcome something, uh, man, you need to check your pulse. 
because uh, that that was a really well done story. I thought. Yeah, absolutely. I think anyone whose bumhole wasn't puckered the whole time needs to check their bumhole. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um. Yeah, I would have. I would, I'd get a hold of of Chief Vinnie Venturella. Brilliant. Sounds like an amazing guest. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, his uh, the idea there is that he wrote that book, and he was kind of the era before social media, right? And so he might, whether he's got 120 followers on Instagram or or anything else, he's got a lifetime of experience. And uh, and I think that from a generation that was not necessarily our generation, but has still seen it from a from an outsider perspective and uh could lead could lend some cool perspective i think absolutely i think that's important as well because there is an entire you know but there are entire generations plural that don't have any social media presence that are amazing i think rich is one of them i mean his his right. uh his episode was incredible and i'm, I'm wanting to sit down with those guys again because you talk about humility and servant leadership i mean that man walks the walk uh, yeah you have to do i mean that's it Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, um, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Uh, well, I, I train, you know, I, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of like learning new things and, and choking people too. Right. So jujitsu has become that aspect for me. Uh, and then just taking long walks with my dog. That's, uh, those are my two go-tos. Beautiful. One doesn't do it. The other will. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, then, if people want to learn more about you, reach out to you. Where are the best places online? Uh, Instagram, DanceGidmore11, or uh, Facebook. You know, I try to add anybody that doesn't look like an absolute bot on uh, my Cadre DS Facebook, or just email at ds at gorock.com. I'm happy to help anybody or answer any questions or, or just try to be a, a, a connector w- from people to people, right? And if you don't, if you're looking at doing something, I'm always open to having a cool conversation. Beautiful. Well, Dan, I just want to say thank you. Like I said, I don't think I've had any other interviews from Marrakesh, so that's a first. Um, <laughs> so I appreciate you taking the time to come on today. But uh, yeah, I mean, your your story, like everyone that comes on here, you know, every person's story is unique, and there's so much I think value to people in the high level tactical space, whether it's the mental side, whether it's the physical side from so many of us that are listening. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, thank you for having me.